Hey, uh, we're in the Gospel according to John, and uh, I got to tell you some things about John, uh, just because it's, well, it's good to know. Uh, John writes his gospel differently than all the other gospels. I mean, they all have their own perspective. We've talked about that before. Like if, if four people witness a car crash, different people, when they're given their testimony, you're going to highlight different things. Like one said, well, I made eye contact with the guy that's about to get hit, or I saw the car sliding through the stop sign on a, on a icy day like this. Everyone's going to have a different perspective. Same event, same people involved, just a different take on it. Uh, John is significantly different than the other Gospels. He changes the order of things a little bit, but he has a purpose in it. And one of the purposes that John has is that he wants to make sure that those who don't know, who, who aren't part of the Jewish tradition, he's, he's very evangelistic in his Gospel. He wants anyone who knows anything and they read this to understand who Jesus is. He also makes sure that he ties in the history of God with his people in every event of this gospel. And there's one of those today, one that I just learned recently, I mean, last week, and I'm going to nerd out on you a little bit, but I can almost, almost guarantee you that it will seem nerdy, but you'll see why it's important at the end. So John, Mark, the gospel according to Mark says it like this. He, Mark, says it's the shortest of the gospels. He starts right off in Jesus' ministry and, and, he, and he says, follow Jesus. And if you get to the end of the book and you haven't figured out who he is and that he deserves your life, then just go back and read from the beginning. That's not the words he says, but that's his approach. John's completely different. John starts off right away claiming the logos of God. In our hey, aha logos. In the beginning was the word. And the idea of the word, we talked about that last week in that culture, the Greco-Roman Hellenistic culture of the time. The, the idea of the logos, the word, was, was this kind of force. You know, the creation power. But there was no way that it would ever be flesh or even material. It wouldn't be tangible. And he, he goes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God in the beginning, and the Word became flesh. He did, he took a concept and he showed that God takes on skin and becomes humanity. It's, it's, it's phenomenal what he does. And in those first 18 verses, he calls Jesus the Word, he calls him the light, and he calls him the creator. But John, not wanting, to, not wanting to confuse anybody, not wanting anyone to wonder, well, who is this person, Jesus? He, in 19, verses 19 through 51, he gives an almost exhaustive list of who Jesus is. I mean, there are so many titles we could give Jesus, but for this time in history, the most exhaustive list ever put to paper was in 19 through 51 of John chapter 1. So I just want you to see what John is saying. He's saying to his readers, I want to tell you who he is, and then you watch his life by reading this gospel, and you will be convinced that I'm right in claiming who, who, I, who I say he is. He is called Messiah in verse 21 and 40, uh, 20 and 41, the prophet with a capital P, uh, verse 21, Jesus, verse 29, Lamb of God, 29 and 36, one who baptizes with the Spirit, verse 33, chosen son of God, verse 34, rabbi, teacher, verse 38, 49. I know I'm talking fast, guys, but I'll slow down. Um, Christ, the anointed one, verse 41, son of Joseph, verse 45, Nazarene, 45, uh, son of God, 49, king of Israel, 49, and son of man, 51. If you have any question about who John is claiming Jesus to be, read this list, and you won't have any question of what John intends. And the other cool thing about what John is doing here is that he, like I said a minute ago, he ties together the significant moments in the history of God's people 
with the significant moments in the history of Jesus. And he's saying to his people that Jesus is the culmination, the completion, and the fulfillment of all the promises, prophecies, and advancements that God has made through his people throughout time. And there's one of those that shows up subtly in this passage, but I'm going to, total pastor nerd. It, it blew me away when I read it, blew me away when I discovered it, and I've just got to share it with you. And at the end, we're going to talk very much something very similar to what you gentlemen just shared with us, that it's not the pastors, it's the people that God wants to use, ordinary people to do extraordinary things. So I'm going to offer a prayer. We'll read the passage and, uh, and we'll go from there. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for who you are. And on top of that, Lord, for what you do for us, what you do in us, and what you promise to do through us. Lord, this is not my message for them. It's your message for us. So give us eyes to see what you want us to see, ears to hear what you want us to hear, and hearts to receive what you want us to receive. Let it be, Lord, that you speak to us today, we receive it, and we leave here knowing you better and different. We pray this in Jesus' name, through the power of your Spirit, for the glory of God our Father. Amen. So, we're going to skip a few little pericopes, little sections here. Uh, that's John the Baptizer. And I call him John the Baptizer, not John the Baptist, because I don't want people confused with the, the Baptists of our, of our culture, the, the denomination. They don't follow John the Baptist. They are people who baptize believers. Um, so John and Baptist seems like a title and baptizer is an action. And John was known for baptizing people as they repented in prepare, preparation for the coming Lamb of God. John has a, 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 an encounter with some of the leaders of the synagogue or some of the leaders of the temple. They come to him. They want to know, are you, are you, are you the Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? No, but I came like Elijah uh, as one crying out in the wilderness, pointing toward the, the one who is to come. And the way Pastor Andrew put it last week is the, the, before there was a was, the one who was, he is. Okay? So these guys got it. Your English is good because mine's not. I know enough to get by. Um, <laughs> So they question him, and, and, and John is really good at, 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 at saying, no, don't look at me, look at him. Don't look at me, don't look at him. And he says, he, he says these words, and you've heard it before. The one who's to come, he's so much above me that the thongs of his sandals I am not worthy to untie. And I just learned this this week, that disciples never untied the thongs of the sandals of their rabbi. Only slaves did. So John is saying, I am so low on the totem pole of God's creation and compared to Jesus that I am less than a slave. So he is always pointing toward, pointing toward. In fact, John's job as he's uh, training up his own disciples is to raise them up so that when the Lamb of God comes, they will leave John the baptizer and follow Jesus, the Lamb of God. And that's what we hear right here. It says, it says the next day John was there with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. It's got an exclamation point there, though he's loud. And when, when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. So they left the one they'd been following, and they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what, what, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? I just want you to know there's a little, little thing here in the Greek. Um, the question 
we hear where you stand, we're thinking temporary, like where, where are you staying at night, that kind of thing. What they ask is, where are you going to remain? Where are you going to reside? Where are you going to be more permanent? And Jesus says, come and you'll see. And they went and they saw where he was staying, different tense of the verb there. This is a temporary place. Um, and spent the day there with him. It was about the 10th hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. Now, I want you to see there that Andrew is named, but the other disciple that left John the baptizer and followed Jesus is not named. We are pretty sure that it's the author of this gospel, the beloved disciple, the one Jesus loves, John the apostle. But we don't know that for sure. But it would be just like John to not name himself because he's always trying to be humble. I know we give a little grief to John about being the one Jesus loves the most. But honestly, if you look at how he writes it, throughout the gospel, he says, the, the one Jesus loved, the one Jesus loved, the beloved disciple, the beloved disciple. You know what he's saying? He's saying to you and me that if we are followers of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're the one Jesus loves. You're the one Jesus left for God so loved all of you that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You are so loved. You are so beloved to God. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas which when translated is Peter. Now, a couple of things here. Number one, uh, I want you to see the pattern because you'll see it again in just a moment, that someone who decides to follow Jesus, one of the first things that they're responsible to do is to bring others to Jesus. Andrew only shows up a few times in the Gospels. He's a very humble man. He's not the one that always seeks the limelight. Peter a little bit, more, more so, but, but Andrew, the first thing he does is he goes after Peter and he brings him to Jesus. That's, that's phenomenal. And one of the things that Jesus does, and another one, this isn't where he's given a title, but he claims authority here that regular men don't have. If you look back in the scriptures, kings, fathers, and God can name or rename a person. And so Jesus, when he says, you're no longer, you're no longer Simon, you're now Cephas, which means Peter, he calls him the rock. It's the one that he changes his character. He changes his calling. He changes who Peter is and is going to be, much like when God called Jacob and Jacob became Israel. It goes on. He says, uh, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Come on and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, here is, here is a true Israelite. Now, this is when we're going to get, start getting to the nerdy stuff here. This and then the last verse that we're going to read here. Here is the one, or here's one, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. Now, just so you know, he's not saying that the man has never lied. He, basically, what he's saying is you get what you see with Nathaniel. Uh, Nathaniel, come meet the one that, the, that Moses told us about, the prophet told us about, Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth? You know, he's not a guy that has an agenda. He's a guy that speaks his mind, asks a question. He's just someone that God can deal with without any hidden agenda. Um, so, I, did I, how do you know me? Nathaniel asked, and Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under a fig tree before Philip called you. And then Nathaniel declared, Robbie, 
You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now that seems like a big leap, doesn't it? That, you know, if, let's put it this way. I used it in the, in the service over in the gym. Pastor Chris was sitting there. I, I've known Chris since we were in college. We've known each other since we were in college. And we've just always called him Peter, Peter and Rita. Okay, Chris Peters, but he just said, it's Peter Head, or Peter Bread, then Peter Head, Peter. So if I saw Peter, if I came into the parking lot and I saw him over by the dumpster, and then later on he's walking up, I go, Peter! And he goes, how do you know me? Well, I saw you over by the dumpster. Doesn't seem like he should call me God, right? I mean, that's a big leap. That's not what happened. See, we're pretty sure here that Nathaniel was off somewhere because he's a true Israelite. He's off somewhere sitting under a shade tree praying seeking God alone. And Jesus hasn't walked down the road and seen some shadow under a fig tree. He saw him because he's God. That's why Nathaniel, this is a miraculous thing. Nathaniel goes, what, how do you know me? I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called. What? There's something, there's something going on there. So Jesus calls him out and says, you're a true Israelite. There's nothing false in you. And then Nathaniel's blown away. And Jesus says, you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see even greater things than that. And then he added, and he switches from singular you to plural you. So he's speaking to all of us. I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. John is always pointing back to significant events in the history of God's people. When we get to John chapter 5, you will hear about the invalid who had been an invalid for 38 years. The only other time that the number 38 is used in all of the scripture is when the, the, the people of God have been wandering around in the desert, and it speaks specifically of 38 years. They ended up being there 40, but 38 years. And they were people that didn't really want to get well. They didn't really want to be the people that God had called them to be. So John is, is pulling together this invalid and the people of God who were invalids as far as their response to God. John is always trying to tie together significant, significant things. And it's a, it's a hint with that there is no guile, there is no falsehood in you. But he makes it really clear when he says, I, you will see even greater things. You will see the heavens open and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And I'm going to take you back to the passage that that comes from. It's in it's in Genesis 28, almost back to the beginning. Jacob, you remember Jacob, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And Jacob was a deceiver. He was one to, known as someone who had much guile. He took what wasn't his. He often had a hidden agenda. He often wanted to, 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 to do what's good for him, regardless of what's good for God and God's kingdom. He stole his brother's blessing. He ran away. He kind of hoodwinked. He got hoodwinked. Anyway. This is what it says. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he had reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on earth and the top reaching to heaven. And I know it's not up on the screen. Just bear with me here. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Jacob. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. 
I will be with you and I will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I had promised you. When Jacob awoke from the sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate or doorway of heaven. I'm guessing you're already putting this stuff together. But Jesus is never, this is called a remez. When something that Jesus says ties back to the Old Testament. He is saying, by calling Nathaniel one without guile. He's saying, he's hearkening back to the one, the patriarch that did have guile. And he's bringing us back to the moment where God said, it's not, it's not just for Abraham. It's not just for Isaac. It's now for you, Jacob, and all of your descendants. So Jesus, right here, when he says the, you will, the heavens will open up and you will see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He is saying that where is the presence of God? Surely the presence of God is in this place. He's saying it's no longer in Beersheba on his way to Haran. It's now in me. The Spirit of God rests on Jesus. He's saying that the fulfillment of the covenant, the fulfillment of the blessing of the earth, the fulfillment of all the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants is now here. God in Christ is fulfilling, completing, culminating everything that has happened. And he's saying to them, the presence of God is now here and it rests on the Son of Man, which is another harken back to, to, to Daniel, the, the book of Daniel, when the people of God were in, were in captivity for years and years and years. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they get thrown into a furnace, and there were three that went in, but when they looked through the little window, they saw four, one who looked as if he was the Son of Man, rescued them. They were not burned. They, were not, they couldn't even smell like smoke. Jesus is telling us that God and I, if I'm Jesus, we're the same. And the presence of God is no longer in a temple. It's not resting somewhere. It's among you. It walks with you. It talks with you. It knows you. It loves you. And I walk with you and talk with you and know you and love you. That is extraordinary. And it's brand new to me, this Nathaniel piece. Now, that's kind of cool. But let's go back to Andrew and Peter and the unnamed disciple and Philip and Nathaniel. Nathaniel is called and he's singled out, but he's not one of the 12. We don't see him in any other lists in the gospels, but he's a man who followed after Jesus. He might've been one of the 72. We don't know for sure, but we do know this, that he's ordinary. He's an ordinary man. In fact, all of these disciples were probably between 13 and 19 years old. They had been bar mitzvahed, so they were called men because they'd gone, they got through a rite of passage from boyhood to manhood, but they were still dependent on their fathers. They had done nothing of it. Think of any 14-year-old boy that you know. Has he done anything noteworthy that is going to be recorded in Scripture or in the history books? Probably not. I'm not saying that they don't do great work and that you're not proud of them. I'm just saying that it's probably whatever they've accomplished by the time they're 14 probably isn't anything that the world is going to be changed by. Maybe later, but when you're 13 or 14. But I want you to notice that God has a history of picking ordinary people. Mary, 
was 13 or 14 year old virgin girl, never kissed a boy. And she, she was entrusted with giving birth to God with us. And there are dozens of examples. And if you're an ordinary person, you ever wonder, well, God can't, he's not gonna use me. I don't know enough, I don't do enough. If he knew what I had done, if he knew the thoughts that I've had. So let me just read you a list of the company that you're in. Noah, we don't know if he was a drunkard before the flood, but we do know that after God had saved humanity, saved creation, saved all of the animals, and, 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 and put a bow in the sky and said, I will never do this to the earth again, he, he, gave, he gave the world a good bath. And Noah comes out of that, and very soon afterwards, he's in his tent, and he's hammered. He's as drunk as he can be. Abraham was too old to have a son that God would bless the world through. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Leah, sorry, but Leah was ugly. Joseph was abused by his brothers and by Potiphar's wife and by others. Moses was a stammerer. Gideon was afraid. Samson had long hair and was a womanizer. Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah and Timothy were both too young. David had an affair and he killed the husband of the woman that he slept with. Elijah was suicidal, or at least he cried out and said, it would be better if I'm not alive. Isaiah preached naked. You want to see that? <laughs> Jonah ran from God. Naomi was a widow. Job went bankrupt. Peter was a fisherman who denied Christ. The disciples fell asleep while praying. Martha worried about everything. The Samaritan woman was divorced at least once. Zacchaeus was too small. Paul was a persecutor of Christians, and the little girl that Jesus said to lead the to, the widow's son at Nain, and Lazarus, they were all dead, and he used them. Can he not use you? An ordinary man, an ordinary woman, an ordinary boy, an ordinary girl. God has a history. In fact, he never picks the person that we would pick. He's an ordinary person and he does extraordinary things. It's an, he's an extraordinary God. All the titles that Jesus has just by being God in flesh. It is, it is outstanding. It is extraordinary. The extraordinary life that Jesus is going to lead, he invites ordinary people to join him in it. And it's an extraordinary mission to save mankind, to, to hear, to, to, to be in a place like these gentlemen are where Christians are converted by a vision of Christ and they proclaim the word of God. And because they proclaim the word of God, people pour gasoline on them and are gonna light them on fire. And they still won't deny the one who's extraordinary, the one true God. That it blows me away because we're mildly inconvenienced as Christians. We're stoned to death with marshmallows. They taste sweet, they make you fat, but meh. God has called you God has called you. Follow me. What do you say? I'm going to give you gold here. I'm going to give you a theological truth that's very hard to wrap your head around. I promise, he says sarcastically. It is impossible to follow Jesus unless you actually follow Jesus. So if Philip, follow me. If he goes, eh, nope, and he walks away, we never hear the name of Philip, and Philip is not one of the disciples because he did not follow Jesus when he was called. And you've been called, ordinary people. And I want to show you one more time. I've used this example before. It won't take long. One more time, I want to show you how God uses 
unexpected, ordinary people to do impossible things in ridiculous ways. I'm going to sum it up with the, the story of Jericho once again. I probably, I think I did this a month ago, maybe two months ago. But the people of God, a non-warring tribe, a ragamuffin group of people who don't really know who they are. They're pretty sure whose they are, but they don't really know who they are. And they don't, they don't have weapons. They've never been, to, they, were in, they were in captivity for 400 years. They were slaves. They didn't have, know how to train up soldiers. They didn't know how to do it. And God preserved them and preserved them. And he brought them to the most fortified city in the region, Jericho. And this is what God tells his people to do. I want you to take all the men of fighting age. I want to take the ark where, where God resides. And I want, you to, I, I want you to walk around the city every day for six days. Now, militarily speaking, this is the most insane thing you could do. Predictability number one, never let your enemy know what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. Two, let them see exactly how many people you have and what your armaments are. Not smart. Three, do nothing when you show up. And keep doing that for six days. And on the seventh day, let's add a piece of confusion. Let's wear you out and have you walk around seven times. How does God, so unexpected people, it's impossible that they would take Jericho and it's in a ridiculous way. Scream. Ah! Walls fall down, Jericho's delivered. Now you might go, oh, that's a cute little story. That's how God works. Because the wisdom of God is greater than anything. Even God, what we might call, what someone might call God's foolishness is greater than all of man's wisdom. Not my words, scriptures. God has something he's doing. And he's called every one of you to participate with him. He's going to use unexpected, ordinary people to do seemingly impossible things in seemingly ridiculous ways. Why? Because he wants the people to see not how great his people are, but how great their God is. Why is God willing to humble himself and become a creature? Because he loves you so dearly. For God so loved the world that he gave himself, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So here's the question, folks. You're in good company. You are as loved and as trusted and have as much wisdom as Moses. You are adored like the disciple that Jesus loved. And you are trusted like Saul who became Paul and wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. How do I know? Because you're not the person that you would probably pick. I'm certainly not the person I would have picked. So if God is a God who chooses the ordinary and asks the ordinary people to join an extraordinary God in an extraordinary mission to reveal himself to humanity so that all have hope and salvation and none fall by the wayside. You're in good company. Will you say yes again to his call? Will you follow Jesus by actually following Jesus? I hope so. These men have. And he's probably not calling you to a place where you're going to have gas poured on you and a lighter lit. He's probably calling you next door where you can bless, eat with people, learn more about Jesus, listen to the Holy Spirit, and realize that you're a sent person by God himself. If you follow Jesus, you call others to follow Jesus. I hope you will. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for Nathaniel. Thank you for Jacob.
Thank you for all the patriarchs and all those that you've used through the years because they're great examples of them not being great people. It gives us hope, Lord, that you can use even us. So, Lord, as you call, give us the courage to say yes. As you say, follow me, give us the courage to follow. And as you say, speak, give us the courage to speak. Lord, let us live lives that, that are such that other people can see not who we are, but whose we are. Let our lives reflect who our God is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <coughs> that when Jacob saw the angels, and the angels ascending and descending, he said, surely God dwells in this place, and I wasn't aware of it. And then Jesus, God is dwelling whether we, in him, whether we were aware of it or not. You know where he dwells now? I mean, the Holy Spirit of God is omnipresent, but you know where he dwells now? Where you might be unaware? is between your two lungs. The presence of God on this earth is in you. And everywhere you go, blessing goes. So go and bless as the Lord blesses you and keeps you and makes his face shine on you, be gracious to you. As the Lord turns his countenance toward you, that's a look on God's face. As God smiles at you and gives you peace, be his peace to others. And all of God's people say, amen. Go with and in the peace of Christ.